Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite a poet to select a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then they read a poem of their own that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Dorothea Lasky, the author of several books of poetry and prose, including her forthcoming collection, The Shining. She's the co-creator with Alex Dimitrov of Astro Poets, and she teaches poetry at Columbia University. Welcome, Dottie. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So the first poem you've chosen to read is Three Songs by Louise Blogan. What was it about this poem that caught your attention while you were looking through the archives? Well, I think because um, I have this book uh, coming out called The Shining, I've been thinking about what makes a terrifying poem. (laughs) Um, I don't know too, too much about Bogem, but um, I knew that she had a long history, you know, at The New Yorker. And I read her book, Blue Estuaries, in graduate school. And I remember being horrified and scared of her (laughs) poetry. Um, So I thought she'd be a perfect poet to bring into the discussion today. (laughs) We possibly talk about terrifying poetry. (laughs) Sounds good. I know that uh, this was not only in the archive, but the last poem in that book, Blue Estuaries, which I kind of love as well. So like a final word. (laughs) Yeah. Well, why don't we listen to the poem? This is Dorothea Lasky reading Three Songs. Three Songs. One, Little Lobelia's Song. I was once a part of your blood and bone, now no longer. I'm alone, I'm alone. Each day at dawn, I come out of your sleep. I can't get back. I weep, I weep. Not lost, but abandoned, left behind. This is my hand upon your mind. I know nothing. I can barely speak, but these are my tears upon your cheek. You look at your face in the looking glass. This is the face my likeness has. Give me back your sleep until you die, else I weep, weep, else I cry, cry. Two, psychiatrist song. Those concerning whom they have never spoken and thought never to speak, that place hidden, preserved, that even the exquisite eye of the soul cannot completely see. But they are there, those people in that house and that evening scene, newly above the dividing window sash, the young will broken, and all time to endure, those hours when murderous wounds are made, often in joy. I hear, but far away are the mango trees, the mangrove swamps, the mandrake root, and the thickets of, are they palms? I watch them as though at the edge of sleep, I often journey toward them in a boat without oars, trusting to rudder and sail. Coming to the shore, I step out of the boat, I leave it to its anchor, and I walk fearlessly through ripples of both water and sand. Then the shells and the pebbles are beneath my feet. Then these two recede, and I am on firm dry land with, closely waiting, a hill all sifted over with shade, wherein the silence waits. 
Farewell, phantoms of flesh and of ocean, vision of earth, heal and receive me. Three, masked woman's song. Before I saw the tall man few women should see, beautiful and imposing was marble to me, and virtue had its place and evil its alarms, but not for that worn face and not in those roped arms. That was Three Songs by Louise Bogan, which was published in the April 1st, 1967 issue of The New Yorker. I don't feel as scared in this moment as I might you don't? Re- reading it I'm terrified. <laughs> I think there's parts of the poem that are really interested in, uh, you call it terror or, you know, horror, but I think it's also kind of um, an internal lack of grounding, you know, little Lobelia, though her song is very um, sing-songy, by the end it's, you know, sleep and death and weeping and it's give me back your sleep until you die, else I weep, weep, else I cry, cry, and it feels like predatory almost. Is that how you hear that? And how, this is a broader question I have, um, how do those three songs interrelate for you? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, working on The Shining and just being, like, obsessed with The Shining <laughs> for a very long time. The movie, you mean, The Shining. The the movie more than the book, but, yes, not to be mean to the, the book. The book and the movie, <laughs> yes, Stephen King's yeah. The Shining. <laughs> yeah, but the movie, yes, and um, just this idea, I think, of psychic, you know, power or or The Shining or, um, you know, maybe a kind of terror and just that eternal and kind of internal pain that one feels Mm. um, to kind of be trapped within the self and maybe not always be able to get out of that voice, whether it's the voice of the self, you know, or the ghost or the demon or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And I know a little bit, I remember learning in graduate school from the teacher that brought in Bogan, you know, to the class that she had these crying fits um, Mm. and where she would wake up in the morning and just couldn't stop crying. And her daughter would call uh, the the thing that made her cry Little Lobelia. And and Bogan thought of it as this child ghost that was kind of inhabiting her named Lobelia, I guess, um, and making her cry. And she would have to kind of like exercise it. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's so, and that's Is that what, what you hear here? Yes. Yeah, I really do. I think the part that is, um, that is so scary to me is I come out of your sleep. I can't get mm. back. I think if anything said that to me, <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would be in a bad place potentially. Yeah. Right. Well, that's rich context you provided. I mean, <laughs> but I also think without it, I, I know, I know nothing. Mm-hmm. I can barely speak. But these are my tears upon your cheek. There's a kind of transference of pain and and even power, I think. Um, The song quality is so prominent as well. It kind of lulls you. It's an anti-lullaby, I feel. And -hmm. it draws you in with that sound and then, you know, kicks you around, makes you cry. Um, And even the the phrase, this is the face my likeness has, it's very inverted in its discussion of how the grammar might usually be. How do you experience the song-like quality, I guess, in this part of the poem? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, I've I've always seen rhyme as having like a haunting quality and not um, necessarily being innocuous, which is obviously kind of funny when we think of nursery rhymes or, you know, songs that are sung maybe for children or something, you know, they, they have that sinister quality in that kind of perfect rhyme sometimes. And Right, right. Yeah. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs> Yes. Uh, nursery rhyme is a good way to put it, um, and it has that ominousness. Reminds me how people say it's a fairy tale ending. It's like, have you heard fairy tales? <laughs> you know, in The Bachelor, when they start talking about fairy tale endings, I start to worry a lot about whose foot is going to get cut off or what have you. And this has that quality. You look at your face in the looking glass. You know, that mirror quality, and knowing, as you said, this little Lobelia is really interesting. Yeah, it's it's interesting, too, because I know that word lobelia is also a little flower. I think maybe like too much about flowers, especially lately. I think during the pandemic, flowers especially became my friends, even though I think they were more friend than foes, you know, before that. But um, but I just love thinking about flowers as like kind of hiding in plain sight. You know, we see them and they have so much, you know, power. The natural world has so much power and I don't know why the daughter gave the, you know, child ghost that name, but it would be. So the daughter named it Lobelia, not uh, Bogan. As far as I know, but I could be wrong. Biographers. Uh, uh, let's go with it. Like it's, <laughs> it's amazing. I think. I don't always want to read biographically, but here the psychiatrist song. I I was struck just reading it because the first time I read it was recently. Though I've been going back and reading Bogan's work, and and you know I think she's criminally underrated and and should be more read. And hopefully your bringing her to our <laughs> attention will will only uh, expedite that process. But hearing this psychiatrist song, the music is really different, if not gone. And that really struck me hearing it, uh, especially on the heels of the first one. And you keep waiting for almost the rhyme to kick in, even just a, a little bit, almost in a kind of um, a proof rock way where it might just pop in there. Um, and it has that kind of structure almost, those hours when murderous wounds are made. And you think, okay, now we're getting it off and enjoy. <laughs> okay, what? You know, it just kind of comes up short. And then it says, I hear, period. You know, and this hearing... <laughs> isn't uh, of the kind that leads to something transformative or maybe even clinically, you know, positive, you know, it, it in a way is a kind of I hear and but not listen. I wonder how you took that second part. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's something where Bogan is kind of queen of the mic drop with her line breaks. You know, it's like the often enjoy. It's like she just leaves it. There's there's so many poems, especially in Blue Estuaries, where it's like, wait, you're just gonna you're just gonna leave us like that. Like, and I think in those lines, often enjoy, and I hear, period. I'm just gonna stop it. And I think that is such an interesting technique that she has, especially in the shorter poems. But here, it's interesting how she's like employing it, but. I think also it may be, you know, one's relationship to a psychiatrist too, you know, or a therapist. And I know that, you know, obviously there's so many different kinds of therapy, but just thinking about this image of a psychiatrist that we might have as an archetype who is quiet, you know, if we're thinking about Freudian mm. psychoanalysis, which would have been, you know, in the zeitgeist around maybe sure. this time and just how there's that idea where the person gets therapy through their own stream of consciousness and and these short clips are are they 
you know, the psychiatrist kind of putting their say in, or is it just that that feeling of the one-sided conversation? And it's so hard to know in this part of the poem what exactly, um, you know, she's saying about psychiatry or therapy. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's a song. Mm-hmm. So it's meant to work on us in some way by its music and not necessarily by its meaning, if the two can be separated, which they can't. But for the moment, if let's say we can, those concerning whom they have never spoken and thought never to speak. That place, hidden, preserved, that even the exquisite eye of the soul cannot completely see. You know, whoa, (laughs) like we're in a whole different voice than this anti-lullaby or lullaby of the beginning. We're in a place that is kind of hidden yet preserved, which perhaps is the unconscious. Um, But what I think is interesting is I, I have this tension between thinking, it's the psychiatrist singing of that patient relationship that you mentioned. Or is it the psychiatrist who themselves is kind of disassociating across the, the length of that little section? There's a kind of feeling that I'm, you know, the person is having the ground beneath them swept out. Mm-hmm. Um, this happens almost literally. I walk fearlessly through ripples of both water and sand, then the shells and the pebbles are beneath my feet, then these two recede. And I am on firm dry land, are you, <laughs> with closely waiting the, a hill all sifted over with shade, wherein the silence waits. You know, <laughs> That doesn't feel as comforting, the surface of it, the tone of it fights, I think, what it's being said. And I wonder how you take this and these phantoms that uh, the psychiatrist sings of. Yeah, it's it's so it's so fascinating because I think of that line too, those people and that house and that evening scene and thinking about, you know, just the human psyche is like almost like this collective thing where we all have our particular, you know, we each of us have that particular childhood home. It's it's that house. It's not, you know, some amorphous house. We can see the specific curtains. We know the chairs in there and that makes the memory. It's that evening which whether mm. we fell in love or something awful happened or whatever, but it's like it's both um, totally anonymous and totally specific in the way it's described. And I feel like that relates to this um, firm dry land that may or may not be sure footing. You know, there, there's something mm-hmm. where we're like, we, we feel we're on the particular of that house. You know, it's our childhood memory, but yet we completely become decentered because, you know, all humans have specificity that maybe is washed away in the act of therapy or just existence as memories fade or something like that. And I think she does such a wonderful job of like evoking that feeling, especially vision of earth, heal and receive me. Just think. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's also a language I would call kind of clinical that both fights what starts to feel as you're talking about it. And I'm looking at it again, feels like a kind of dream state. Um, that gets interrupted or or maybe one gets lost in. But that clinical kind of language um, isn't comforting even as it's describing something. And it happens, I think, in the beginning, I hear, but far away are the mango trees and then this great kind of parenthetical, the mangrove swamps, the mandrake root, two 
you know, rifts almost off the mango trees, which might be a real thing. And then mangrove swamps are very real, very different feeling and, and locale. But then the mandrake root becomes <laughs> this mythic thing that, you know, of course, killed you if you could, if you pulled it out of the ground, <laughs> it would kill you if you heard it because it would scream like a, a person. There's all that happening at once, I feel like. And, you know, some poets might do it by line breaks or by a self-conscious kind of describing of these connections. Instead, it's very sonic, those connections, I feel. Yeah, and you could imagine, you know, thinking about just the associative logic, like in a dream or maybe in a therapeutic state, you know, someone prompting you, what do you think of and what's tying it together could be the dream, because you could have a dream of mango trees and the mandrake root, but also I feel like it's like she's kind of tipping her hat or whatever you want to say to like the power of language, that the fact that they share the beginning, you know, the man. A root, as it were. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. That that's kind of like the power of their connection and somehow they're tied, you know, together, even if we don't necessarily know the meaning or something like that. I think about that in the ways that words connect, you know, but their meanings are so different and but poetry like places them together sometimes just by the nature of them having the same letters. Yeah, yeah. Well, thinking about the last song, Masked Woman Song, I confess this one like feels so wild to me and even less grounded than the first two. And I wonder how you took this masked woman. Is that, you know, this poet coming Fourth, finally, you know, and, and I'm also aware of sort of gender, this man, mango, mangrove, mandrake. <laughs> How do you sort of see that playing in as well? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I almost feel that like the little Lobelia kind of evolves, you know, through the mm. psychiatrist song into the mass woman or or maybe little Lobelia has some some connection. Maybe it's the mandrake root. Yeah, that idea that if there was a little demon in the root and when you pulled it out, it was really mad and it screamed and ready to get its revenge. So maybe it's like transmuting or, you know, transfiguring right. into this root that then becomes the mass woman song. But um, it's so interesting, too, in, in Blue Estuaries, which feels such like a deliberate collection. And I remember learning, too, she was just so particular about what poems were going to go in that. And she saw that as her last book and that this is just the final um, poem in that. And yeah, it it feels like it's very complicated what it's saying about why the woman is masked. And is the Mm -hmm. woman masked because of this tall man? And should we be scared of the tall man few women should see? And I feel scared a little bit, to be honest, like, but we don't really know. There's not much given about him, except possibly he's beautiful and marble. But mm-hmm. um, but I see that mass woman also just, I mean, maybe it's a little cheesy to say, but as like the persona potentially and and um, just uh you know, I, I was watching because um, I love Tina Turner and I love her <laughs> memory and spirit. And I was watching a clip from her where she was talking about, you know, her performative nature and how when she's home, she's not Tina Turner. She's herself, you know, and, and she's anime. And, but she puts that persona on and she loves that persona, too. But th- those sure. are not the same person. And I love thinking about the poet, you know, as performer and putting on their mask um, and 
and what that means and why somebody might do that in a poem. And it makes me wonder about Bogan's relationship to that, how she may have seen her persona in a poem or her persona as a critic, um, which I know was so important to her work and just kind of fascinating. Well, I love that, how you put it. I, I think it's very smart to think of it as Bogan, but not Bogan in some way. And um, this end, because there's almost a vision of an afterlife or a heaven or a kind of future tense. Virtue had its place and evil its alarms. I mean, this could be life as well as an afterlife, but not for that worn face mm -hmm. and not in those roped arms. <laughs> You can't see my uh, uh, worn face, but it's kind of just my a jar at, at the kind of boldness of of that uh, as an ending of a poem, a book. I mean, I don't. I think the thing that strikes me is how uh, unique this is. Though I think it has echoes. You can see that she's almost in a conversation with Rutke, who's also trying to write about disassociating <laughs> figures over time in uh, the sections. Um, and I know they uh, knew each other. But I also think that it has a, its own thing that I don't think you see very much these days. Can you do that now? Is what I was like. like can you teach us, Louise, how to? Well, right. It's just so overwhelming that she ends the poem that way. The worn face, no one can see my worn face too, but I definitely feel the war, well, the wornness of the face. But I think it's those roped arms where I think of, you know, Blake for whatever reason and his like imagery of these kind of deities that feel like they're hyper muscular and just like almost like not necessarily like objectifying muscle in the way we think, but yeah, like kind of disembodying muscle from its like humanness or bodiness and thus becoming a deity or um, something, you know, like that. I also think of this poem I love by Jack Spicer called A Book of Music, where the last line is poetry ends like a rope. And in the poem, he describes a rope that's so twisted and turning like lovers or like the ocean, you can't find one end or the other. And then he just ends it. It's like poetry ends like a rope. It's like, wait, could you <laughs> come back and just yeah, give us Yeah, come back a... and tell us the answer. <laughs> yeah, like rope of what, you know? <laughs> right, right. But I love, I love that these roped arms somehow become the answer that she ends on. Yeah, well said. I mean, I, I love that you picked this poem. And what I would say is thinking of Blake is a brilliant comparison because it feels like songs of experience, these songs that have a veneer of innocence uh, somehow, or maybe the Lobelia does. There's this kind of real understanding of innocence and experience are not as separate as even Blake might have us think, though I think Blake thought of this complexly as well. Um, so I don't know. That's amazing. And sometimes mystery isn't as used as we might think, you know, um, say it plain becomes kind of how we go about it. And mm -hmm. so maintaining this mystery, I think, uh, while also exploring it is, is something I admire in the poem, too. Yes, me too. Um, I also think of HD. I don't know if you love that poem called Sea Violet. Um, I love it so much. I actually named my 
baby after <laughs> yeah, after when her name's not C Violet but Violet. Um, but you know, I know kind of like a similar time. But in that poem, she kind of um, compares all these little blue violets that are not worn away by the sea. They're kind of sheltered and they're having fun and they're chattering and they're being, you know, beautiful blue violets. And then there's that one worn violet that's on the edge of the sea and sand and it just completely it has a worn face and that's like its great power it becomes a star and um, I think about that that'd be such an interesting poem to compare it to you know to mass woman's song and that that kind of exaltation of the worn worn away the power and that and especially the power of that in a poem what does it mean to keep the mystery because some kind of plainness has been worn down and so all you have left, you know, is the mystery? I mean, I can't put it better than that. It's so beautifully said. Um, now, in our December 9th, 2019 issue, The New Yorker published your poem, The Green Lake, which you'll read for us in a moment. Is there anything you'd like to say about it before we hear it? Yes. Um, it's part of a book that I was um, working on before I, you know, started on the um, working on The Shining called The Green Lake. And it's it's a, a name that I took from a Joseph Travolo book um, called The Green Lake is Awake. But it's it's a lot about kind of like this moment and thinking about um, climate and just kind of all of the sublime romantic beauty of the natural world that um is terrible too. I guess I'm always into terror, but <laughs> um, yes. And um, should I read the poem? Yes, here's Dothea Lasky reading her poem, The Green Lake. The Green Lake. What work will you leave behind? I asked the tailor who has sewed the button upon my shoe. I can walk again. Yesterday, everything felt so hopeless. Now I have the energy to sit in the sun. All of the damned seething baths, now I am finally on my own. When I go places, I call her and unload my fashionable happenstance. I used to stop in the street and pick up an acorn. There were so many things I used to do. In the middle of the fire, I went and thought to mention it to the ghost. I have already burned, it said. Its face was like my father's, but was different. What work will you leave behind? I asked myself while in the rain. Oh, this and that, it answered me, and handed me the stars, then the moon. That was The Green Lake by Dorothea Lasky. I love the kind of mix of tones in the poem. Yesterday, everything felt so hopeless. I mean, who hasn't had some version of that, right? Now I have the energy to sit in the sun, all of the damned seething baths. Now I'm finally on my own. There's a, there's a kind of shifting. It's more than just line to line. It's sort of within the line, the speaker's voice and feelings. It's a, almost an epic in these sort of four lines. And then at the penultimate stanza, in the middle of the fire, I went and thought to mention it to the ghost. I have already burned, it said. Its face was like my father's, but was different. How does that, how do those two places connect? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, 
I, I think a lot about, and again, you know, maybe connecting it to The Shining or just spirituality or maybe connect it back to Bogan as long as we're at it. But the, just this idea that the spiritual world, you know, can live in the everyday and that, you know, we can just happen upon it and happen upon its mystery just to connect to our earlier conversation, you know, just by kind of living and that that a, especially a poem provides like place for those things, you know, to be together, you know, it's not necessary that you have to like, you know, describe their connections as you might if you were really trying to explain it to someone. It gives us the space to cut out what what connects them. So I think that it's that kind of, you know, gesture, especially in that stanza. Well, and that being on one's own, I think in another poem, it would be like a triumphant roar of independence. But here it feels tenuous to me, like being on one's own isn't always comforting. Um, Certainly the same person who says yesterday everything felt so hopeless, you know, the ghost almost is in a similar boat. It's both comforting and not. Yeah, it's, um, you know, this I, which is always an I, I maybe have a little bit is is a very lonely I. And it's only, you know, comfort is the possibility of the spiritual world, because Mm. um, the the world, the non dreaming world or the not spiritual world does feel like such a desolate place and that they, you know, have more of maybe a connection to these ghosts that are surrounding them than than maybe other people, you know, one somebody one might call or, you know, randomly or something like that. I hope that the book that the poem is in is kind of like maybe commenting on our time where maybe that it, it feels mm. that way. And I don't know, you know, not everyone feels that way, of course, but we're kind of always reaching and searching out, you know, for a connection with with people. And I think we do that, especially online or, you know, not not to be mean to, you know, love the love, hate the Internet or whatever. <laughs> love who's ever listened to this on the Internet. But um, but we're always kind of searching and reaching. And there's mm-hmm. there's an emptiness there a lot Hmm. of times that maybe only the spiritual world fulfills. But then you have this tailor and the rain and things that feel uh, evergreen, not to put too fine a point on Hmm. it, that I think are really interesting. I mean, the tailor is the stuff of uh, nursery rhymes or and then we have the end, which has rain and stars and moon. But then this amazing first line, what work will you leave behind? which is a very big question, uh, both a poetic one in the sense that poets ask themselves this <laughs> perhaps too often, but then also a um, sort of, you know, what are your good works um, kind of quality. And I, I wonder how you balance that, the natural world, the spoken world, the world of language. Um, are they the same in the poem? Yeah, I think that that the poem is trying to kind of contend with that and what it means to leave behind um, poems. I know as a person that's something I'm always, you know, wondering and worried about. Is this a worthwhile endeavor, you know, to be collecting these um, these things versus the work of a tailor that actually is doing something seemingly like important, you know, which is like fixing a shoe and then you're able um, to walk and be in the world. And so I think it's that kind of like age old question, does poetry matter? Is poetry important when, you know, 
when there's so many other maybe pressing things that a person could do with their time. And I'd like to think it's like a complicated answer in the poem, but also maybe it, poetry does get the, the last laugh a little bit in the ending because it encompasses the stars and the moon, which also seem pretty um, concrete and important, you know, too. So it's sure. kind of that tension that maybe we think about as poets. I mean, maybe it's kind of Blakeian as well because you have this myth that feels like it's just right behind what's happening for me these lines like I used to stop in the street and pick up an acorn there were so many things I used to do which is almost like the start of a memoir (laughs) that doesn't end but it's also the memoir of us all like you know it's about childhood it's about you know the oak that grows from it but there's also the green lake lurking behind and you said it has these inspirations were you conscious of evoking the lake without really having the lake Yes, yeah, definitely. And and having that presence of the acorn is like that natural world potential, that, that kind of seed that like one could pick up because it's beautiful and maybe they're going to make something with it or they could, you know, plant it. Not that I could, but, you know, one could or <laughs> whatever. I wouldn't know what to do with an acorn as Dottie, but my persona maybe could um, <laughs> yeah. plant it and, and grow like a beautiful tree or something. And so, yeah, I, th- I think it's that, you know, feeling of hopelessness that like feels most important to the poem and to the book that it's in. And I've been working on a nonfiction book called Memory um, because my father um, passed away from Alzheimer's almost 14 years ago, you know, in the spring, I guess 13 years ago, and just kind of grappling, you know, with, with what we leave behind when our memory is stripped. And so I think that a lot of the book is kind of, you know, thinking about that. What, what do we actually leave behind? I guess when we leave behind poems, we're leaving behind concrete words that get you know, planted in the imagination of others. And that feels like important work when we can't conjure that language anymore if our brains are done or, you know, but is it as meaningful, again, is the work of the tailor who's actually like helping someone do something important? I'm I'm sorry for your loss. And, uh, you know, I think the poem has that kind of ghost-like quality that I think you're describing a little bit in memory, that memory is both a presence, but then also can be fleeting. Um, I think that's really powerful, but the poem also assumes, it doesn't explain uh, in ways that I think is really important to what you're trying to do. I mean, in the middle of the fire, I went and thought to mention it to the ghost. You know, the ghost is there, the fire's there. <laughs> they, they, they appear out of, as if out of nowhere, but they're always kind of lurking in a, in a powerful way. Same thing with the tailor, uh, who feels a bit more hopeful, but there's these moments of connection, let's call them, or, or, or imagery that I think feels fleeting as well, that feels like it's part of the effect. I guess my last question about that is, you know, are you thinking about the ghost-like kind of lack of punctuation in the poem? Is that how it comes out? Do you take it away later, or is it, is it how you hear the poems? Yeah, it's so interesting, you know, and that's why I love, I know we talked about that kind of just like hard stop of the Bogan, you know, these short lines that are staccato, and then she has the period and it's like, whoa, you're like, you mean to end it? And I, um, a while ago, you know, I um, had an experience teaching children like in a school, um, and we read Merwin, you know, the Vixen, and um, 
uh, one of the boys, he was in second grade. I'm sure he's in college now or maybe <laughs> he's a professor now or something. Um, but he said, why doesn't this poet have punctuation? There's no periods here. Like, that is just wrong. You know, <laughs> we need some periods. We need to work this out here. And I just became obsessed with that reaction because it was like he, you know, knew the power of the period. And so I think it does relate to what we're talking about with mystery. What does it mean to leave it just not ending, you know, and just something that is endless, that the line is clipped almost like the fates, you know, clip our lives at a certain point and then they <laughs> keep going or whatever they're doing. Like that Jack Spicer line, it's it's ending like a rope, but it could go on forever if we let it. And so it's like there's a fragment, you know, nature. And so I, I've become maybe too much, you, you know, into that idea, whereas I just don't use much punctuation at all. It's the rarest thing, which makes writing prose really fun because then you can just use it all the time. But in poetry, I've gotten a little bit <laughs> maybe too far into no punctuation at all. <laughs> well, I love what you said about it being kind of almost cyclical because it isn't just a rope. It feels like a circle, a knot. Um, and we have to kind of both unknot it and then also let the knot be in the poem. It's, it's beautifully done. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think of ones like poetry books that way, too, that they're all just kind of one endless thing that we cut off as we like end one book, but we could potentially fuse them together. And maybe there's some sense of in these lines of not having periods that that it makes it more possible for, you know, a poet to have one long book in their life. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a delight to talk to you. The Green Lake by Dorothea Lasky, as well as Louise Bogan's Three Songs, can be found on NewYorker.com. Louise Bogan's volume of collected poems is The Blue Estuaries. Dorothea Lasky's forthcoming collection is The Shining. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Rokadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.
This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com.